Please rise for the reading of God's Word from 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, verses 1 through 5. Hear now God's Word. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. On this Lord's Day, before our national celebration of Thanksgiving, I want us to focus on the latter part of verse 3 through verse 5, which have to do with how we are to view the world, uh, how we're to receive and respond to the world that God has created. It begins by telling us that in latter times, this text does, referred, so that the term latter times referred to in this text encompasses all the time between the birth of Christ and the second coming of Christ. In the church, there are people who come and there are people who go. And I'm not referring to those who move their membership to another church, but rather to those who leave the faith or who adopt a watered-down or substitute version of the faith. Pastor Timothy saw these kinds of things, and so do we. We have seen some depart from the faith, some who sat in church week after week, some who sat in a Christian school day after day, and some who grew up in Christian homes. Jesus described two forms of this kind of apostasy. Apostasy just means falling away. This kind of falling away, Jesus said but in his parable of the sower and the seed, but the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, who believe for a while, and in time, in time of temptation, fall away, apostatize. Now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. Now, it's possible that some among us today will fall away from the faith. It may be happening as we sit here this morning. And it will certainly happen in the future. Jesus warned, and notice he uses the word many twice in Matthew 24, and then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another, then many uh, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And that's what Paul is talking about here in First Timothy, is false teaching, false ideas, false notions, things that go against the gospel of, of, the, of Christ. And then people who initially said we are followers of Christ begin to either drift or uh, abandon the gospel. Timothy was already well aware of the dangers of uh, unsound doctrine in 1 Timothy 1, uh, 19 and 20, having faith in a good conscience, which 
some have rejected concerning the faith and have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, Paul says, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Just as false teachers had plagued the people of God, that is Israel in the past, so they will never cease to disturb the church. So while the church had in these early centuries experienced phenomenal growth, uh, and so we're, again, we're still not that far out from the death of Christ. So in, in this, uh, oh, 30 plus years or so, as, as Paul is writing, uh, we've seen all of those things happening, but at the same time, now, now things are established. Now it's not brand new. And we have thousands of people, and some of them, again, are starting to fall away. Satan would not sit very long before mounting an all-out assault to choke out the pure seed of God's Word. Some fall away. Others drift away, growing dull of hearing or lukewarm or simply losing their first love. And so the people who depart from the faith start down that awful path, according to this text, in one of two ways. Either they are deceived by the compromises and the lies of others, false teachers, or they are deceived by their own compromises and lies, their own justifications for their lack of commitment, their lack of commitment to the Word of God and to to Christ's church and so forth. And so, they start to depart from the faith. In either case, they are taking heed, according to what Paul says here, to demonic teaching. Screwtape, you'll recall, instructs his demonic nephew, Wormwood, as to what his task toward men is, which is, and I quote, do remember that you are there to fuddle them. The first deception of a person comes when he thinks he can't be deceived, and after that, all other deceptions become easy. And so as people leave the faith, they they tend to fall into one of two ditches. You can fall off the horse on the left or the right. Some reject the creation as bad. And Paul is addressing those People really in this whole, either one calls, causes us to fall away from Christ. Both of these are the result of deceitful and demonic teaching and activity. We get oftentimes in the Bible, a curtain is pulled back and we can see behind the scenes what's really going on. They are beliefs that stand in diametrical opposition to God and His Word. 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved, and for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. It starts by flirting with sin, following my lust and desires, 
and starting to justify my doing so. Why it's not so bad after all. We must note and note strongly that there are some Christian homes, Christian churches, and Christian schools who contribute to this falling away, to this apostasy. And Paul gives us some reasons for these abdications. First, he says some people give heed. That is, they pay attention to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. The devil is an expert in advertising and sales. If he can put a bikini on it, he can shut a man's mind down. And there are all kinds of bikinis. I'm speaking metaphorically, of course. John Bunyan wrote about this in his Pilgrim's Progress. You'll recall Vanity Fair. Then I saw in my dream that when they left the wilderness, this is Christian and his companion, Faithful, they immediately saw a town before them, and the name of that town was Vanity. And at the town there was a fair kept called Vanity Fair, and it is kept all the year long. It bears the name of Vanity Fair because the town where it is kept is lighter than vanity and also because all that is sold there or comes there is vanity or emptiness. This fair is no newly created business but a thing of ancient standing. I will show you the original of it. Almost 5,000 years ago, there were pilgrims walking to the celestial city as these two honest persons are, and Belzebub, Apollyon, and Legion with their companions, perceiving the path that the pilgrims made, that their way to the city lay through this town of vanity, they contrived here to set up a fair, a fair wherein should be sold all sorts of vanity, and that it should last all year long. There at this fair are all such merchandise sold as houses and lands, trades, places, honors, preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, and delights of all sorts, as whores, bawds, wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. And moreover, at this fair... There is at all times to be seen juggling, cheats, games, plays, fools, apes, knaves, and rogues, and that of every kind. You see, a perversion of the good can be very seductive because it promises immediate gratification In the name of love or in the name of fun, a great deal of harm can be done. God made everything and he declared it to be good, but the sinful heart of man can distort that very goodness and turn it to a destructive purpose. So the first reason there are abdications is people listen and pay heed to these things that are being sold, these false ideas. Second, he says they are speaking lies in hypocrisy. These are leaders who say one thing and do another, and our world is full of these kinds of messengers, 
politicians and preachers and every form of media, they tell you what you want to hear. They seduce you, as Satan did in the garden. Seducing spirits or demons make use of men and women who tell lies. Rod Dreyer, in his book, Live Not by Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents, makes this observation. And this is the thing about soft totalitarianism. It seduces those, even Christians, who have lost the capacity to love enduringly. Remember, love is about sacrifice, for better or for worse. They think love, but they merely mean desire. They think they follow Jesus, but in fact, they merely admire him. Each of us thinks we wouldn't be like that, but if we have accepted the lie of our therapeutic culture, which tells us that personal happiness is the greatest good of all, then we will surrender at the first sign of trouble. You see, a person can depart from the faith without openly renouncing the faith. It starts by breaking your promises. We all made promises when we joined the church to be committed. To be committed not just to to the church, to God, to each other. Well, if I can scoot that promise to the side and it's not that big a deal... Well, I made an oath before God when I did that. That's the first step away. And there's lots of other ways we can begin to step away. In fact, the most, most who depart from the faith do so while maintaining an outward claim and show of faith. In fact, they're very pious on the outside and indignant at the thought of having their faithfulness questioned always ready to shift the blame for their own lack of responsible conduct to others, twisting the truth in order to justify themselves, never stirred by conviction. Sin and apathy have just become comfortable. One of the ironies of preaching is that the ones who are living godly lives readily respond feel that sense of conviction. And the very people who need to be moved are often not moved because they've already moved away from Christ. They're untouchable. Third, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. You see, hypocrisy leads to a seared conscience. Ephesians 4.19 speaks of those who are past feeling. Doesn't bother me anymore. Used to bother me. The Bible used to bother me. It doesn't bother me anymore. I don't think about it anymore. I've put it aside. I've heard that so many times. As a result, our conscience ceases to be sensitive to any offense against the holiness of God. But the author of Hebrews warned this in Hebrews 3 Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you. He says, brethren, if there be in you, in any of you, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. 
but exhort one another while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, while it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And when the Bible gives that kind of warning not to harden your hearts, that means it's possible to harden your heart. Not just everybody else. It's possible for me to harden my heart and for you to harden your heart. Fourth, in this case, again, he's, he's dealing with a particular problem that arose here. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods. As I mentioned, in this case, Paul's dealing with those errors that make the world an evil place. The problem is the world. The problem is all that stuff out there. We need to get away from that. That's the problem, not you. So we're going to make a bunch of rules. We're going to become legalists. We're going to uh, enforce this. We're going to create a system that will produce godliness. But let me tell you, legalism is every bit as much a killer as licentiousness. So, sex is bad. Or, sex is everything. Or, food is bad. Or, food is everything. Creating unbiblical rules makes the world an ugly place and makes it repulsive. And frankly, many Christians have done this and do this. If this, sometimes I think when I see that, I think if this is what Christianity is, then I don't want anything to do with it. what drives many away, including our children. We make it ugly. We're called to adorn the gospel with joy and gladness and thanksgiving. Not a dour, here's all the rules. You better not step out of line or we're going to swat you. Now, you know congregation, you know me well enough to know that I believe the Bible gives us plenty of boundaries and standards, and we have an obligation to not just obey them, but to love them. That's different. The obedience is the product of love. Verse 3, God created marriage, food, and everything else to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. You want to know what what it's all for? God said that if you receive what he made, everything he made, with thanksgiving, that's the context. Notice in Philippians when it says, when you're anxious and you offer up prayer, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, in the midst of your anxiety, in the midst of whatever you're upset about, worried about, don't forget to give thanks because that thanksgiving changes our perspective. Helps us see what's going on, good, bad, or otherwise. Genesis 1.31, Then God saw that everything that he had made, and indeed, he saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. 
So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. This is the foundation of Christian thinking. No part of the created order is bad in itself. Anything that implies that it's bad undermines our Christian foundation. God made the world in the first place, and He is remaking it through Jesus and the Spirit. And we may not abandon that mission, but rather must celebrate its rescue and its remaking. When God created the Garden of Eden and when He placed Adam and Eve in the garden, He didn't have rules for everything. It was a garden of yes with one no. One of the greatest sins we find in the Bible is the refusal to give thanks to God for His good gifts. And it's all a gift. The first chapter of Romans gives a peek behind the curtain and shows us what is really going on. And I'm going to take the time to read a good portion of Romans 1 here because I think it's important for us to, again, take that look behind the curtain and see what God says if we said, God, you, you have a perspective we don't have. We're looking at this person or that person or even ourselves. Would you tell us, would you set the scene, would you help us see the whole picture of why this world is in the mess that it's in? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, in other words, He said, there aren't any atheists. No matter what they say. That's, they knew God. And although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. There's the problem. But became futile or vain or empty in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Turn the lights out. I don't want to see this that God's given. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. We'll worship anything. We'll worship anything, any created thing. We will not worship the Creator. We will have all kind of causes Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, 
leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even though they didn't like to retain God in their knowledge, I don't want to think about him. I want to banish him. I want to get rid of him so I can do whatever I want to do. God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. That's what happens when we refuse to give thanks. Does this not describe the culture we live in? And where did this falling away from God all start? It started with the refusal to give thanks. And if you and I ever start to fall away, it will start with ingratitude. The Holy Spirit, Paul says, clearly says that we should expect to see the truth assaulted and people depart from the faith. In fact, the church has always had to contend with such threats. In our own day, we see that many professing Christians believe every version and perversion of Christianity that it's as good as any other. Now, if any of this makes you a little or a lot uneasy, that's actually a good sign that there's still hope, and that you haven't fallen away. People who are truly walking with Christ don't take offense at something asking about their walk. Hostile or defensive reactions betray a person in spiritual decline. So, how are we to view the world? I want to turn the corner here. This verse is specifically dealing with legalists, lawgivers, Judaizers, and false teachers who place heavy burdens on other people. They prohibit this. They deny that. They insist on the other thing. They not only place unbearable burdens on the people of God and deliberately distort the beauty of His creation and design, but they seek to undermine the Word of God, which must remain the only plumb line for life and living. It's the only standard of truth. God created everything and everyone to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Verse 3. For every creature of God is good. Verse 4. God invented marriage and sex and food and music and art, beauty, plants, animals, and people. He pronounced them all to be good. We are world-affirming Christians, not world-denying Christians. Belief in the truth 
sanctifies all of it. The Word of God is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. And when we enjoy the things that God created, pick a subject, pick a discipline, when we study it and we get to know it and delight in it, when we do that, we are enjoying God Himself because these are His creations. These are the works of His hand. And so again, when we study, create, make use of, share, and especially when we give thanks, then we are seeing the world the way it was meant to be seen. For example, Robert Capon writes, to be sure, food keeps us alive. But that is only its smallest and most temporary work. Its eternal purpose is to furnish our sensibilities against the day when we shall sit down at the heavenly banquet and see how gracious the Lord is. Food is the daily sacrament of unnecessary goodness ordained for a continual remembrance that all the world will always be more delicious than it is useful. He could have just given us a tablet. Purina human chow or something. This is true of everything God created. So how are we to receive and respond to the world? He says, nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving. Verse 4. When the good things that God made are used the way God intended them, the only possible response is to give thanks. God is a good father, a father who provides good things. So what may we receive with thanksgiving? Tables and feasts are pictures of the rest of God's good gifts. So when you gather around a thanksgiving table, or any table for that matter, or the Lord's table, whether it's a simple table or it's loaded, this is a picture of all the gifts God gives you in your life. The people, the things, the beauty, the music. Over what kind of meal may we bow our heads in true and reverent gratitude? Well, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. He made it and arranged it for it to come to our plates. And so we bow our heads over it full of gratitude no matter what it is. And we simply... Give thanks. I saw a little girl the other day being interviewed. Little girl, maybe three or four. Someone asked her, what does she want for Christmas? She just said, presents. Well, God the Father has filled our world with presents. It's all a gift. He has blessed you and me with so many things and with so many people. In fact... We are so surrounded and engulfed that such riches seem normal. They're the rhythm of, the rhythm of these regular blessings is sometimes broken though when they're suddenly absent. Even the trials are presents. Sometimes the wrapping is harder to get off, but at the center of everything is a gift. 
Sickness and loss and disappointment and sorrow, pain and death, these are but reminders that the blessings are gifts to be held with an open hand. And they serve as warnings that we must not forget the giver. All things and all people must fall away in the end. And if we haven't learned to love the giver, then we have missed the point. The enemy of thanksgiving, then, is ingratitude. And therefore, the enemy of the gospel is ingratitude. But the serpent is crafty. 2 Corinthians 11.3 And so Paul wants Christians to be on their toes. As Christians... We all know that we're to render thanks to God all the time, but I said in last week's sermon at family camp from 1 Thessalonians 5.18, and everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And you'll recall, those of you that were there, I said, here it is, in everything, in every circumstance, give thanks. Can you make a list of the things you're not thankful for? then take that list and go thank God for all those things and all those circumstances. Pastor, are you crazy? Yes. Every one of those things is being worked together for your good. I love this prayer of thanksgiving from Robert Capon, which is full of metaphors for all kinds of thanksgiving. So as you listen to this, it's a, it's a blessing over a meal, but you'll hear the metaphors that really apply to all of life. He says, Oh Lord, refresh our sensibilities. Give us this day our daily taste. Restore to us soups that spoons will not sink in and sauces which are never the same twice. Raise up among us stews with more gravy Then we have bread to blot it with and casseroles that put starch and substance in our limp modernity. Take away our fear of fat and make us glad of the oil which ran upon Aaron's beard. Give us pasta with a hundred fillings and rice in a thousand variations. Above all, give us grace to live as true men, to fast till we come to a refreshed sense of what we have, and then to dine gratefully on all that comes to hand. Drive far from us, O most bountiful, all creatures of air and darkness. Cast out the demons that possess us. Deliver us from the fear of calories and the bondage of nutrition, and set us free once more in our own land." where we shall serve thee as thou hast blessed us with the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, and plenty of corn and wine. Amen. Psalm 79:13. So we, your people, and the sheep of your pasture, will give you thanks forever. We will show forth your praise to all generations. G.K. Chesterton said, You say grace before meals, all right. But I say grace before the play and the opera and grace before the concert and the pantomime 
and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching and painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. God is to be thanked and praised for everything He has created. Every year is full of joys and sorrows. But even the sorrows can surprise us with new joys when we recognize the hand of God in them. He calls us to give thanks in and for all things to find the sweet in the bitter. Every sweet thing has some taint of a fallen world, yet in every bitter thing there remains the sweet. The unfallen world as well. Even in the greatest of what we call tragedies, even in the darkness and power, even in the darkness, the power and the goodness of God shines forth and hope moves us forward. God mends, God saves, God resurrects. He brings good out of evil. Even in the storm, He comes to us. In our weakness, He makes us strong. We cannot usually see very far ahead. Nevertheless, if we can see him in the storm, if we can hear his still small voice, then we have a lighthouse that will bring us to safety. One way to see the world is that people fall into two basic categories. They're either bitter or grateful. The first category is filled with people who are bitter, unforgiving, and ungrateful. These three qualities go together since a lack of forgiveness and ingratitude are the ingredients of bitterness. Bitter people see themselves as victims. They feel sorry for themselves. They blame others for their own pain and their own failures. But the second category of people is made up of those who can let go of other people's offenses against them and have learned to be thankful. They're filled with gratitude for the good gifts of God that he's given them. And the gratitude, that gratitude, like its bitter counterpart, not only fills them, it overflows onto all of those who are around them. You know who the grateful people are, and you know they're a joy to be around. You can't be filled with gratitude and bitterness at the same time. One will push the other out. He concludes here in verse 5 that these things we're thankful for are sanctified by the word of God in prayer. All things are received with thanksgiving and they're received with prayer. I've always loved what question and answer 116 in the Heidelberg Catechism says, why do Christians need to pray? And the answer, because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness God requires of us. Say thank you. It's it's that simple. Thank you, Lord. And I just want to close with this. How do people start to depart from the faith? It's seldom sudden. Screwtape writes to his demonic nephew, Wormwood, again. He says, do... But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from God, what he calls the enemy. It doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. 
Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. Thanksgiving is so important in the daily Christian life that anyone who rejects God's good gifts or takes them for granted runs the risk of falling away from the faith. Let's pray. O Lord, keep us close to you and to your truth. Strengthen us that we might grow, that we might not grow weary in well-doing. If we begin to drift, call us back. May we, like Timothy, wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience. And may we avoid rejecting or neglecting your truth and end up like some who have, have regarding their faith, suffered shipwreck. Thank you for the church, which is the pillar and the ground of the truth. And thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for your good creation. Teach us to enjoy it and thereby to enjoy you forever. Amen. On Thanksgiving Day, this coming Thursday, many will give no thanks at all. Some others will be thanking a pantheon of false gods. But as we celebrate our national day of Thanksgiving, I want us to think about a few ways in which we show the world our gratitude and thanksgiving to the one true and living God. We begin by confessing our faith in Jesus Christ, and this is both visible and invisible. And while the visible and invisible are distinct, they remain inseparable. We give thanks for both invisible and visible things. And we have both invisible, that is inward and visible or outward expressions of gratitude. Since thanksgiving is flowing from our hearts, then we show that gratitude both publicly and privately. It's an expression of who we are in Christ, the children of God. And we do this in worship. We do it in eating and drinking and in giving to others or serving others. Psalm 100, 4 and 5. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless him, bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. And so we culminate every worship service at the Lord's table. That is the Eucharist, the the table of thanksgiving. Thanks is something we give. It is a sacrifice. It's an acknowledgement that we are not self-sufficient, but rather dependent upon God and dependent upon others. We receive a blessing, and now we give something in return. Calvin said every blessing that God confers upon us perishes through our carelessness if we are not prompt and active in rendering thanks. Gratitude is an attitude. It's not happy people that are thankful. It's thankful people that are happy. Like other meals, we have shown up at the appointed time knowing that our host has prepared delights for us. And that as members of the household, our Father has provided for us above and beyond all that we could ask or think. We gather with love and gratitude. 
We've been blessed with great abundance, and we should rejoice in that abundance, and we should not feel guilty about the abundance that God has provided. To feel guilty is actually to be guilty of another sin, that of ingratitude. And so we sit together at this table of the Lord. It is the Eucharist, the Thanksgiving. Amen.